John read from Second Chronicles 7, 14, uh, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We have to make sure we pay attention to the turn from their wicked ways. It is only then that God will hear from heaven. That's what the message this morning is about. The purity of the church. And I recognize that this is not an easy passage. I recognize it's dealing directly to the heart of the church. It deals directly to the heart of the individual within the church. But please stick with me through the end. Because we as a church in America need to hear this today. So if you would please turn to 1 Corinthians 5. And we're going to read through the entire passage together. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body I am present in spirit, and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in my name, of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. For your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now, I am ready to do not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside to purge an evil person from among you. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open to hear from you. Father, I pray that the words I speak would be your words, that I would shrink back, that you would stand bold. Father, that you would be in this message, that you would be this message. Father, also that we have no forgiveness of our sins apart from Christ. And outside of Christ, and outside of the finished work of Christ on the cross, this means nothing. So Lord, may we focus on the cross, may we focus on you, may we focus on the forgiveness of sins that is found only in Christ Jesus. 
And may we hear Paul talking to us as a church that we need to aid one another in that. that we need to aid each other, that we need to be helping each other seeing those blind spots that we might not see. And Father, that this is part of the plan for that. So be with us now as we hear your word, be with me as I preach your word. Lord, may it not fall on deaf ears. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And for hearts that are open to receive this message. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. One thing needs to be said about Corinth and the church in Corinth, and that is that their culture was a culture that is much like ours today. Corinth was a very well-to-do society. They were sitting in a very strategic and advantageous position in global trade. You could not go north or south, east or west in the ancient world without traveling through Corinth if you valued your life. The only way to get around Corinth was to go down around um, a peninsula that was very dangerous to get around. Um, it is said that Corinth was six, is six miles wide and people would actually take the freight from one boat and carry it that six miles or they would put the boat on logs and roll the ship across the island or across the uh, across Corinth just to save going down around the peninsula. So you can imagine when you have all of those people from east, west, north, and south coming through Corinth that this is a melting pot of a whole bunch of different cultures, a whole bunch of different beliefs, a whole bunch of different ways of doing life. One commentator put it this way, it said Corinth's geographical position as an international center for trade, together with its attraction for business and economic prosperity, already sets the stage for regarding it as a deeply competitive, self-sufficient, and entrepreneurial culture. Marked by ambitions to succeed, and what we nowadays term a cast of mind shaped by consumerism. He also goes on to say that it is not surprising that the culture of the day in Corinth Express a degree of self of self satisfaction, if not complacency, along the drive to compete and to succeed. The culture was one of self promotion alone. It was also a culture of doing whatever they wanted to do and whatever they needed to do to get ahead. It was also marked by autonomy and self sufficiency and an attitude of you can't tell me what to do or how to live. There's a poem by William Ernest Henley that is called Invictus. And it, it encompasses this concept. The very last four lines of the poem read this. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That was the attitude of Corinth then. That is the attitude of our culture now. But one thing needs to be noted about this letter that Paul is writing. Paul's not writing to address the culture at large. He is writing and he is admonishing the church because that culture has found its way into the church. That culture permeated the church then as it is permeating the church now. This is made very clear in verses 9 through 13. So before we begin this and before we start looking at this, I need you to turn your attention from the world and turn it to the church. This is not a rebuke of the world, but it is a rebuke of the church of Christ. So the immediate problem that Paul is addressing is a case of sexual immorality in the church. And Paul says it is of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. So three people writing in that time period wrote this about either this 
exact instance or just it in general. Gaius, who was a Roman jurist, wrote, It is illegal to marry a father or mother's sister, and nor can I marry her who was at one time my mother-in-law or stepmother. Cicero, who was a Roman politician, wrote this. He expressed disgust when he said, Mother-in-law marries son-in-law. It is unbelievable. And a sexually liberal poet catalyst calls it abhorrent. So if you can imagine the thought of a moral society and the moral, moral compass of a church when the moral compass of a society that appears not to have a moral compass is condemning what the church itself is doing. Just think about that for a minute. That is the equivalent of our culture looking at us and saying, of all of the disgusting things that we do, we don't even do that. What's worse is that not only does the church not see a problem with what is happening, they're actually proud of it. The word arrogant translated here, the Greek word translated arrogant, literally means to make proud. It is to become, to be, or to become proud. It's the same attitude that Paul uses in verse 6 when he says, your boasting is not good. The Greek word for boasting here is used in the sense of personal satisfaction or a satisfied contentment with your own achievements or another person's achievements. So they're not just looking at this and saying, yeah, that's okay. They're celebrating this sin. The modern-day equivalent, I believe, is the acceptance of the promotion and the celebration of the LGBT lifestyle and its acceptance in the church. Many of our mainline denominations, you see this throughout, they are embracing this alternative lifestyle, as they call it. Their attitude about the sin is just as wrong and pervasive as the sin itself. Instead of having a celebratory attitude towards sin, Paul says we should have an attitude of grief and of sorrow for both the person and of the church. But it's also clear from the passage that the church in Corinth knew of and was giving approval to this sin. And we must note that this sin was not just a one-time act. They didn't fall into temptation once, confess their sin, and repent. And I need you to see this in one very small but very important word in verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The ESV uses the word as. The NIV puts it, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. I believe both are saying the same thing. The sin that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 5 is present, it is ongoing, and it is unrepentant. But don't think for a minute that Paul limits his sin to that, or limits this letter and limits the condemnation of sin that is just limited to a sexual orientation, that is just limited to one of the sexual in nature. If you drop down to verse 11, Paul expands the notion of this letter. He expands the, the the scope of what Paul is addressing when he says that we are not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is guilty of sexual immorality and greed, or a person who is a reviler, which is someone who attacks the reputation of another by slander, by gossip, or by telling lies about someone else just to make the teller look better. He also talks about someone who is a drunkard, be careful to note that he's talking about someone who is a drunkard, not someone who uses alcohol. 
is talking about someone who drinks alcohol to the excess for the sole purpose of getting drunk and intoxicated. It talks about someone who is a swindler. Someone who uses deceptive means to get and extract money from somebody else, to get their way from someone else. A scam artist or a fraud. So even though Paul is writing to address a very specific sin, if we limit our view to that, and only that, I believe we are missing the point of the passage, and we do very much damage to the purity and to the witness of the church. If we think that the only sin being addressed in the church are the sins that are sexual in nature, we have completely missed the vileness of sin and how corrupting it is. Psalms 11.5 says that God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste and run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discords among brothers. So how do we go about addressing this in the church? Remember, we're talking about the church. Our witness should be that the culture. Our attitude and our lifestyle should be that which calls the culture into condemnation. Not us going out and pronouncing judgment. So how do we address the issue of unrepentant sin among the professing Christians in church? I believe, this is, I believe the solution comes in two parts. The first part, I believe, is addressed explicitly in this passage. The second part is addressed more implicitly as the role of what a church is to be in the life of a believer. So the part one, I believe, is corrective discipline. Five times in this passage, Paul uses and instructs the church to remove this person from their fellowship. In verse two, Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse five, he tells us that we are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 7, he says, we are to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new monk. Verse 11, he says, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of the list of sins. And verse 13, he says, to purge the evil person from among you. So we're going to briefly look at verse 11 because I think this sums up everything in the other four verses. When Paul says that we are not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality, the word Paul uses for associate is used in the sense of to mingle. It's used in the sense of to get involved or mixed up with. And I believe this statement has church membership and the view of church and the, the uh, benefits of church membership in view when he says this. So listen very carefully to the qualifying statement that he says in verse 11. Again, we're talking about the church. Anyone who bears the name of brother. I believe what Paul is saying is as a church, we are not to continue in a corporate relationship with the person by allowing them to participate in the Lord's Supper and fellowship meals where the church is gathered as a family and only as a family in community outreach where, again, we as a church go out into the community and we are witnessing to that community and we present ourselves as a unified body. Or any time we're being in association with this person would give the impression that we approve of or we are giving commendation of the lifestyle that this person is living or that we recognize them as one of our own. 
That is what I believe Paul means when he says, do not associate with someone. I do not believe he means that we never talk to this person again. I do not believe that he means we shun them and we never have contact with them again. I do not believe that he means that we are not to restore them. And we'll get to that later. But this is not a kicking out of the church. Once and done, you're out never to be reinstated into the body of Christ again. If that's your view, I'm sorry, but you have it wrong. If that's your view, then none of us can come to Christ at any point in time. None of us is worthy to walk to Christ, to come to the cross, ask for forgiveness, and be accepted into the body of Christ. So if that's the way we treat brothers and sisters who sin, we don't understand what it means to be saved. I believe that Paul makes the case clear that the purpose of correction, of corrective discipline, is for restoration. I believe this, you see that I believe that this is made very clear in verses 5 through 7. First, the restoration is for the individual. Paul says, You are to deliver this man to Satan from the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Paul's use of the, of the term of the flesh is not referring to physical harm coming to this person. The flesh is in reference to sinful humanity. It is to that physical aspect of a person that is understood as the seat of sin and rebellion to God. In Romans 7, 5, Paul writes, For while we were living in the flesh, and then he qualifies that with the statement, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for spiritual death. That phrase, our sinful passions, gives meaning to what Paul means by the flesh. He's not talking about your human fleshly existence. He's talking about the sinful passions that rage within us. Galatians 5.17 says that for the desires of the flesh, again, those sinful passions that are present in all of us are against the spirit. So when Paul writes the destruction of the flesh, I believe that his prayer for this man and our prayer for anyone should be that of an awakening for the person being disciplined. Essentially what we are saying as a church is your life is not lining up with your profession of faith. Here's why we believe that and we need you to reevaluate your life and we're here to help you do that. The goal of this wake up call then is, the, is that the essence of the second half of verse 5 so that they may be saved. That they may turn from their sins and embrace Christ once again. I said earlier this is not a three strikes and you're out. The church is ultimately looking for repentance and forgiveness for this person. I believe this because of what is read in Matthew 18. If you want to flip over to Matthew 18, I want to walk through something very quickly. One thing that's to be noted when you're reading Scripture is, and especially the New Testament and especially the Gospels and, and letters, is pay attention to the order in which things are coming. Right? The Holy Spirit not only inspired the words of Scripture, but I believe He inspired the way that the writers wrote the scripture and the thoughts and the logic through scripture. So when Jesus writes, or when the you know, when Matthew writes in, in um, Matthew 18, chapter or verse 10, he's talking about the parable of the lost sheep. He's talking about that person that wanders from the flock and how we are to go after that person to bring them back. Right after he talks about that, he talks about an institute's church discipline, which I believe is the process by which we leave the 99 and go searching for the one. 
first individually, then together with two or three, and then corporately as a body. If, as corporately as a body, the person doesn't listen to us, we are to do what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 5, to put them out and treat and treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. But what's interesting is what follows the institution of church discipline in 15 through, in 15 through 20. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant, unforgiving servant. So Peter comes to Jesus and says, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive the person that sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven, but 77 times. I believe the King James says 70 times seven times. Now Jesus is not telling us to keep track of how many times this person sins. Jesus is saying, there should be no limit to our forgiveness. And that is in step with 1 Corinthians 13, where Jesus, where Paul writes, love keeps no record of wrong. So Jesus can't be telling us to keep a record if he tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 not to keep a record. The mental picture is, don't keep track, forgive the person. And if there's any doubt, read the parable that Jesus teaches in, in, the, in the following chapter, in the following uh, verses in 23 through the end of the chapter. He talks to a guy who's forgiven much, such that he could never pay it back. That's each and every one of us. Christ has forgiven us of more sins than anyone could ever sin against us. To sin against an infinite being is to sin infinitely. This man is forgiven of a sin that he can never pay back, but he goes to a fellow servant who has sinned less and is a failure to forgive. Jesus says in verse 33, and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master, which is God the Father in this passage, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. We said he can't pay his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. If our reason for church discipline is to put somebody out to never forgive them again. We have not yet understood what we've been forgiven of. If you won't forgive, you're not forgiven. Church discipline is any is if church discipline is for the purpose of anything but forgiveness and restoration, we have not exercised our responsibility to the city individual in love. Rather, we have demonstrated that we do not yet fully understand the magnitude of what we have been forgiven. So corrective discipline is first for the individual, and then corrective discipline is for the church. We see this in verses 6 and 7 when Paul writes, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? But he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul uses this analogy of comparing leaven or yeast to sin and how it only takes a small amount to affect or corrupt the whole batch. But more important than the analogy, I believe, is what Paul says about the church. He says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Basically, he says, get rid of the impurities that are in you so that you can be pure. But notice what he says about why we can be pure. 
Paul says, why? Because you really are unloved. As Christ followers, we have been freed from sin. Which you read in Romans 8, 1 and 2. But beyond being free from sin, we have been washed clean of the filthiness that comes from our sin. This came up downstairs with the Nicodemus. Uh, in John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks, how is it that I can enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds with a very perplexing answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus here refers back to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, God is talking to Ezekiel, who was to relay a message to Israel. This is the message that Ezekiel is to relate to the nation of Israel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the reality of anyone that has turned from their sin and repented of their sin and come to Christ and embraced him. He has given you a new heart and he has cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness. Paul's argument is that if we as believers are washed and are clean, why are we making the body and the bride of Christ impure by partnering with or yoking ourselves with an unbeliever? First, or Second Corinthians six fourteen. Especially those unbelievers who are deceived by their own sin and think they are living as Christians. Walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, I believe, is part of the promise that God gave us in Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. He says, "I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk." And the statutes, and I will make you be careful to obey my rules. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is fruit of the Spirit. It is something we get from the Spirit. It's not something we can muster up and conjure up on our own. We must do a better job of evaluating our lives and the lives of those in the body of Christ to see that we are walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Colossians 1.10 we have that responsibility, I believe, which Paul makes clear in verse 12, that we are to judge the ones inside the church. I believe one of the ways that we do this, and the other side of church discipline that I fear is not talked about as much, is that of formative church discipline. Formative church discipline is the most basic way that the church carries out the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus gives to the disciples a Bible false apostles the mission of the church. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is what it means to make disciples. If all we do is are thankful for the converts that God gives us, and we let them defend for ourselves, how are we teaching them anything? How are we teaching them what it means to walk and live as a Christ follower? I do believe that if we got formative church discipline right, corrective church discipline would be easier and it would be less. We would see less of it. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Not only are we ourselves to be learning how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Ephesians 4 1, but we are to be helping others to do the same. Hebrews 3.13 says that we are to exhort one another as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This happens most prominently and the best, I believe, in one-on-one discipleship relationships, where we are meeting daily, weekly, bi-weekly, however, with another brother or sister in Christ, as it's appropriate. And we are speaking into that the life of that person, and they are speaking into our lives, and we are able to be open and honest with each other. This is what I struggle with, or this is what I see in your life. The writer of Hebrews says that one of the side effects of sin is the deceitfulness of it. That we can be sinning not even realizing that we're sinning because we are still deceived by the sin that is within us. You need that brother and sister. I need that brother and sister. We all need that person in Christ to help us point out those blind spots. But the other side of that is giving each other the ability and the authority and the openness to do that when it is necessary. We can't expect people to allow us to speak into their lives and completely shut ourselves off from them speaking into ours. That's a hypocritical way to look at living a Christian life. Titus 2, 1 through 6 is a great example of what a body of believers should be doing. Older or more mature Christians are to be teaching younger or less mature Christians what it means to follow Christ. We cannot allow our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to fend for themselves, because an isolated Christian is a vulnerable Christian. And in Galatians 6, 2, we're told that we are to bear one another's burdens and to so fulfill the law of Christ. Like I said earlier, this means that there must be a level of trust among the congregation. And this goes back to the list of sins that I mentioned earlier, especially the person who is a reviler and a gossip. We must know that when we share our struggles with one another, that what we share is going to be kept in confidence, and that it won't be spread around the church to make us look bad. And why we need to be addressing the sins of fellow brothers lovingly, but also firmly. This also means that as individuals, we need to have a teachable spirit and to be open to both formative and corrective discipline. Both forms of discipline need to be done and perceived as being done in a loving way. We are looking into the person's life and saying, we are concerned for the pattern of life that we see in you. Please hear us. Please let us help you. By this time, I hope that we can begin to see why the process of taking in members is so important in our church, and why the evaluation of the lives of our members is critical to maintaining the purity of the church. Hopefully you can see why being a member of a church, to be counted as one belonging to the body of Christ, is a privilege and not a right. Christ has died to gather together to himself a people who who will be his bride and who are his bride. He died in order that he could sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spotting or any such thing, that she may be holy without blemish. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. And in Revelations 19, 7, we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is between Christ and the church, his bride. John writes, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. 
and his bride has made herself ready. I believe that formative and corrective discipline is how we, the bride of the church, make ourselves ready. When you hear discipline, it sounds like a negative word. As children, you never want to be disciplined. It hurt for the time being. But as we look back over our lives, I hope that we can see that discipline is a positive aspect of life. Both from our earthly father and from our heavenly father. So my prayer is that we will see church discipline as a way, both formative and corrective, to bring purity to the church and to maintain purity to the church. And not as a self-righteous, condemning act that we do to other believers out of spite. I believe that's Paul's heart. I believe that's the heart of Jesus. That's my heart for church discipline. And my prayer is that that's your heart as well. Let's pray. Fathers, we looked at Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth. As we considered your implementation of church discipline in Matthew 18, what it means. Father, my prayer is that we as a body of believers seek to build these one-on-one discipleship relationships. Father, that we would seek to see each other as brothers and sisters of Christ and that we would be looking out for the best interests of those around us. Father, that we would not be looking to condemn one another, that we would not be looking to shame one another, that we would not be seeking to just find that information that we can use against somebody later on. Oh Lord, that we would genuinely be concerned for the eternal destiny of the souls of the people that we are congregated with. That we would evaluate our own lives, Father, that we would allow those among us to evaluate our lives as well. That we would reach out to one another in love, that we would bear each other's burdens in love. And that we would seek to restore one another in a loving way. So Father, be with us as we walk through this as a church. Lord, be with us as we walk through this as individuals and as families. And Father, I just pray that we would seek to be bringing each other into a deeper walk with Jesus Christ. And that holiness that we would strive for the holiness that is out which we will not see God the Father. So, Father, help us to view discipline positively, not negatively. And, Father, may we seek to regain and maintain the purity of your bride, the church. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?